You're listening to the Pursuit of Christ podcast, where we are passionate about developing a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ by taking the truths of Scripture and applying them to everyday life. We hope that you'll be encouraged and challenged as we examine God's Word together today. Well, friends, we're back. I'm excited to begin a new study with you on the seven deadly sins. Killers that, if left unchecked in our lives, can lead to spiritual devastation and the destruction of our souls. At their core, each of these sins are worship issues, as they seek to elevate themselves upon the throne of our heart, which should be reserved for Christ alone. So over the next couple of months, we will examine each of these sins in turn. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. But today we want to take a step back and address a simple question. Why do we need to study sin at all? Well, to answer this question, we need to conduct a brief overview of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. If you recall, the church at Corinth is widely considered to be one of, if not the most carnal church in the New Testament canon. A cursory reading of the epistle reveals the following. Paul has to devote the first four chapters to correcting factions that have sprung up within the church body. There was rampant infighting and a lack of unity. In chapter 5, Paul condemns their tolerance of blatant sexual immorality in the church. In verse 1 of that chapter, he states, And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned. He uses strong language to address their sinfulness. Chapter 6 demonstrates a practical outworking of their internal turmoil and disunity, as Christians were dragging one another to court before unbelieving judges. And in that chapter, Paul tells them, I speak to your shame. Chapter 7 reveals a widespread confusion over marriage and celibacy, which Paul addresses, before then devoting another three chapters to the divisive issue of whether or not to eat meat that had been offered unto idols. Chapters 12 through 14 then address the arrogance and chaos that had been impacting the services of the local assembly. There was abuse of the spiritual gifts and of the Lord's table, which needed to be immediately addressed and corrected. So I think we could all agree that the church at Corinth was a mess. (laughs) But despite all of this confusion, arrogance, and divisive behavior, Paul makes a shocking declaration in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. The text says, Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Did you catch that? Paul calls these struggling individuals saints and sanctified in Christ Jesus. Well, this begs the question what is a saint? Well, according to Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, a saint is one who is separated unto God. Listen to that text. Who Christ, who, the, the, the who there is Christ. Who Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So a saint is one who has been purchased by Christ himself. And being a saint in this sense is not a byproduct of your own ability or effort. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 clearly states that we are saved by grace and that our redemption is not of ourselves, but it is a complete and total work of God. This is what is often called positional sanctification, 
when we were saved, we were given the righteousness of Christ. It was imputed to us. Before our salvation, there was a massive sin debt. We were in the red with no way out. We had no way to pay back that debt. But when we were redeemed, Christ paid that debt and placed the eternal riches of his grace into our spiritual bank account. So when the divine judge looks at you, he no longer sees your sin debt, but instead he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That makes you a saint. But saints still struggle with sin. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. We are in an epic daily struggle against our own sinful flesh. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17 states it this way, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Paul experienced the personal agony of this war which he expresses in Romans chapter 7. In verse 24, he agonizes, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This battle with sin and the subsequent victory that we can experience in Christ is the process of practical sanctification. So positionally, you are a saint. But practically, we have to daily fight in this battle against sin. We know that being changed into the image of Christ is a process. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he, that's God the Father, that he which hath begun a good work in you, this is sanctification, which began at salvation, this process of becoming like Christ. So God the Father, who has begun this process of sanctification in you, of changing you and conforming you into the image of our Lord, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And it is the engagement in this process that Paul calls the Corinthians to in his letter. His argument to them is, because you are a saint, now act like it. Grow into the person that you are in Christ. This is how the realities of positional and practical sanctification complement one another in our own lives. You are a saint. Now grow up into your sainthood by killing your sin and growing in your spirit-filled walk as you are changed into the image of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, states the following, The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is a loss of a ridge or railway or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. And this is why we take the time to study sin. If we can come back to that original question, why do we need to study sin? This is why we do it. Because the spiritual warfare that we wage demands it. Our calling as saints demands it. And our pursuit of Christ demands it. Now sadly, I, I think that many Christians today fail to see sin as sin. The entire concept of sin has virtually disappeared from our culture and from evangelical American churches. One of the most famous prosperity gospel preachers of today, Joel Olstein, made the following comment in an interview with Larry King. He said this, I never thought about using the word sinners, but I probably don't. 
Most people already know what they're doing wrong. When I get them to church, I want to tell them that you can change. Now, while this sounds good on the surface, it neglects several key theological truths. Because first, I think to ignore the reality of sin, it neutralizes the law of God. Paul says in Galatians, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So what scripture teaches us here is that the purpose of the law was to show us our sin, to drive us to Christ. Without sin, there's no need for a savior. So if we deny the reality of sin, we deny our own personal need for salvation in Jesus Christ. Secondly, a a position that denies or marginalizes sin removes the devastating consequences of it from the equation. Romans Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 states, the wages of sin is death. James 1.15 says, When lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Sin has consequences. This is why we need Christ to save us. This is why, according to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-5, through 5, we need the daily reality of the gospel in our lives to put our sin to death. If we deny sin, we create a false reality in which our actions operate in a vacuum. And scripture teaches that that is not the case. Third, I think that if we marginalize sin, it distorts the simple gospel and it demonstrates an apathy for Christ's sacrifice. The the sacrifice which Peter describes as the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Christ shed his blood to redeem us from sin, so to ignore the reality of sin devalues Christ's sacrifice. The result of this distortion and apathy is that God's glory is diminished. When we allow sin to remain unchecked in our lives, God's glory that should be revealed through the lives of his own is hindered. And I would argue that finally, those who diminish sin teach that life change as a result of human enablement rather than as a result of divine empowerment. I think this is prominent in American culture. We see this fleshed out on a daily basis. According to market research, the self-improvement market was worth $9.9 billion, and that was back in 2016. It was estimated to grow to $13.2 billion by 2022 with a 5.6% average yearly gain. Clearly, clearly, our American culture, we are obsessed with fixing ourselves. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture clearly teaches that life change comes through the working of Christ in our lives. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says, Wherefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But don't miss this. Verse 13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You and I cannot fix ourselves. Change only comes through the Holy Spirit of God and through the work of Jesus Christ as he works his will for us and in us, and then through us. But sadly, the eradication of guilt and shame over sin has been one of the most successful aspects of our humanistic, therapeutic culture. I think in many cases, we actually celebrate sin rather than be shocked by it. You only need to turn on the TV or drive down the road to see the shows, the businesses, the movies, 
the entertainment that's built around sin, specifically the seven deadly sins. And I think that the same mindset has crept into the church so that our behavior is more driven by social convention rather than an all-consuming passion for God's glory. Al Mohler makes the following statement in his article, Has the Notion of Sin Disappeared? He states, We find a comfort zone of morality, a kind of middle class, middle level where we think we're doing well. We cut the grass. We don't double park but we ignore the larger issues of sin. Instead of violating the law of the creator, it becomes more a matter of etiquette. We want our kids to play well in the sandbox and know their place in line. We want people to do things decently and in order, but it's etiquette of morality without the ethics. The end result is that when we do things we wish people wouldn't do, there's no sense of guilt or shame. Now, while that attitude may be the prevailing attitude among mainstream Christianity, among conservative Christians, there's often a different attitude, or rather a a tendency, maybe not an attitude, but more of a tendency. And that tendency is to deflect the idea of transgression to those who commit flagrant, abhorrent sins. So the impulse is to look out there in the world, and we rail against the problems that are there when we should recognize that the problem lies within our own sinful flesh. That's what Paul is arguing in in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. He says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. And this is his last phrase. Don't miss this. In the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. That tells me that the problem isn't out there in the world. The problem is the deception and the deceit that lies within my own heart. James chapter 2 and verse 10 reminds us that if we offend in one point of the law, if we, if we break One aspect of the law, we're guilty of the whole thing in its entirety. There's no batting average with the law, right? It's not like if we hit 400, we're feeling good about ourselves. It's either everything or nothing. Because of this reality, Christians need to remember that sin, all sin, is serious in the eyes of God. Scripture doesn't differentiate between good people without Christ and career criminals. Why? Because the disease of sin affects all of us. Romans 3.23 is soberingly simple when it states, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin is not an external out there problem, but it's an internal flesh problem. We sin because we desire to fulfill our own lusts rather than the experience the superior satisfaction that is found in God himself. James 1.14 says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Brothers, we need to remember that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Let's be careful to remember that sin is serious and it needs to be dealt with accordingly. Another reason that sin is so serious is because it's a moral and a spiritual cancer. It affects us personally because sin spreads to every area of our life. For instance, 
If we struggle with self-control in our thought life, that sin of self-indulgence can easily start to spread to other areas. Romans chapter 1 shows a very dark descent into depravity when sin is left unchecked and allowed to run rampant in our lives. But our sin affects more than just us. Our sin also affects our local church assemblies. It affects our families. It affects our spouses. We are not spiritual lone rangers. No believer is a country or an island unto himself, and our behavior affects those in the body. I think it's interesting that when Paul is dealing with the sexual immorality in Corinth, he makes the following statement. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? In scripture, leaven is often used as a picture of sin. If we sprinkle a little sin into the body of Christ, it soon spreads and it affects the entirety of the congregation. Sin is a malignant cancer, both personally and corporately. It is serious and we need to address it. But don't forget, when we talk about our sin, we're not just referring to sinful actions. We're also talking about the principle that resides within us, what we often call our flesh or our sin nature. You need to remember that your flesh is fighting against you every day. It is waging guerrilla warfare. It is fighting you. It is trying to kill you and condemn you to hell. Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 to 21 states, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murder, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Now listen to this. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now I don't think here that he's teaching that you can lose your salvation, but I think that he is stating that if we allow these things to habitually and unrepentantly run rampant in our lives, we need to check our spiritual pulse. Sin is serious. But sometimes, because we as believers tend to live at a higher moral standard than the world around us, we sometimes feel good about ourselves. And we think that God feels the same way. Because we don't do any, everything that they do out there, then God has to be happy with us. But brothers, that's a lie. That's a lie that stunts our spiritual growth and it hinders fruitfulness in our lives. We need to study sin, and the seven deadly sins in particular, because I think that these seven sins are root issues that affect the deepest and darkest crevices of our heart. While they're not always manifested externally, they start in the heart and then work their way out in our lives. They tend to disguise themselves more clever, cleverly than other sins do. In his section in the book, Killjoys, The Seven Deadly Sins, Ryan Griffith stated, All sin is deadly. The reason the church has so long liked to talk about these seven sins is because they represent the rest. More precisely, these seven sins have been considered the sources of species of sin, root-level sins from which a host of other sins often spring. Now, I think that the final reason that we as believers should engage in this study is because sin affects, and this is, I understand this is a primary issue, I've saved it to the end, but sin affects our relationship with God. That's a simple truth that I think most of us would acknowledge, but it doesn't undercut the reality that sin hurts our relationship with God. 
Scripture clearly teaches that sin is rebellion against divine authority. Romans 1.21 says, Because of that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful. This, this is a sobering reality. Because God alone is both beautiful and terrible. And He is infinite in His holiness. He alone is sovereign. According to Psalm 115 and verse 3, God alone sits in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. So thus, when we sin, we rebel against God's sovereign reign and we reject His transcendent majesty. We commit cosmic treason against Almighty God. This, this friends, this should cause us to pause and think hard. If we take sin seriously in our own lives, we have to honestly acknowledge that we commit crimes against the holy God and against his kingdom. R.C. Sproul makes the following statement. When God's character is made clear to us and we are able to measure our actions, not in relative terms with respect to other humans, but in absolute terms with respect to God, his character, and his law, then we begin to be awakened to the egregious character of our rebellion. Brothers, when we sin, we presume on the grace of God. We can't think that the grace of God enables us to sin freely. When we act in this way, we abuse the cross and we spit on God's mercy. Romans 6.1 says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Guys, we are not saved to freely indulge our sinful desires with a get-out-of-jail-free card. But instead, we are called to spirit-enabled transformation which allows us to passionately pursue our God and to love our brothers. Galatians, 1, uh, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13 paints this clearly. It says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Man, I love, the, I love this following quote here from Jerry Bridges. This is what he says. He says, All of our sin is sinful, only sinful and altogether sinful. Whether it is large or small in our own eyes, it is heinous in the sight of God. God forgives our sins because of the blood of Christ, but he doesn't tolerate it. Instead, every sin that we commit, even the subtle sin that we don't even think about, was laid upon Christ as he bore the curse of God in our place. And herein lies the chief malignancy of sin. Christ suffered because of our sins. Now, over the next couple of months, we will examine these deadly sins that hit close to home. At least they hit close to home for me. So I'll be sharing some of my own personal insights and how the Holy Spirit's working in me as I've worked through this study. And as we take time to examine our own hearts, take the words of the great Puritan preacher John Owen to heart. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Well, thank you so much for joining us here at the Pursuit of Christ podcast for this new series. I'm excited about it. I hope that it will be a challenge for you, that it will be a blessing and an encouragement to you as you passionately pursue Christ and take that next spiritual step. If there's anything that we can do to encourage you, we hope that you'll connect with us here at Arise. You can reach us via email at info at arisebaptistchurch.org or communicate with us on Facebook. There's nothing that would please us more than to help you take the next step in your own personal walk with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening today, and we'll see you again next week. God bless. Thank you for joining us today. The Pursuit of Christ podcast is a ministry of Arise Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. 
For more information about Arise and our various ministries, please visit us online at arisebaptistchurch.org. Thank you again for listening, and have a great week.